Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing, and the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, and is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Solvay Pharmaceuticals, and Novartis AG. Today's program is a follow-up to the September 2008 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review topic, How to Interpret Genetic Tests for Cystic Fibrosis. Our guests are Dr. Gary Cutting, Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine, and Barbara Karzetsky, Senior Genetic Counselor and Program Manager at the DNA Diagnostic Laboratory from the Institute for Genetic Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This activity has been developed for clinicians, including physicians, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, and physical therapists caring for patients with issues related to cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, and click on the September 2008 podcast link. At the conclusion of this audio activity, participants should be able to assess the important aspects of transmitting genetic information to patients and families, explain why some mutations cause disease and some do not, and summarize the similarities and differences in the use of genetic testing in population and newborn CF screening. I'm Bob Busker, editor of the Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line we have with us are September Issues authors. Barbara Karzetsky, Dr. Gary Cutting, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Barbara Karzetsky has disclosed no relationships with commercial supporters. Dr. Gary Cutting has disclosed that he receives royalties from license involving CF mutations. The presentation today will not include discussion of off-label product uses. Again, our topic is how to interpret genetic tests for cystic fibrosis. Now, the newsletter reviewed a fairly diverse selection of articles. Uh, Barbara Korzetsky, start us off, if you would, by talking about the underlying theme that ties these articles together. Sure. Genetic testing is becoming commonplace in the course of caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. There are recommendations to do carrier screening on the general population. Many states are adopting CF as part of their newborn screening programs. More and more clinicians are recognizing non-classic phenotypes as well as monosymptomatic presentations and similar phenotypes that may not be caused by mutations in the CFTR gene. More clinicians, therefore, are using genetic testing as a tool to assist them in diagnosing their patients both correctly and efficiently. The articles we chose on delivery of genetic testing, on using genetic testing for diagnostic purposes, on genetic testing in the setting of newborn screening, and on CFTR genotype and prognosis reflect the different perspectives of all the groups involved in genetic testing. Beyond the shared goal of quality patient care, um, the stakeholders have differing goals, expectations, and constraints. The clinical laboratories are the settings that determine the tests that are developed and offered to the clinician. Um, genetic test methods and panels for cystic fibrosis differ in their test sensitivity and their specificity. Um, there are quality assurance and quality control issues that the labs face, like whether or not they can get the right controls to test each mutation um, and ensure that they have a reliable test to offer. There are also issues of having a clear interpretation and risk assessment uh, at the end of the testing, as well as market pressures and other financial constraints that the labs face. 
the other group of stakeholders, the clinicians, need to be aware that genetic tests differ and they need to evaluate the options available to them to determine the best one in any clinical context. The ideal scenario is for the clinician and the lab to work together to either design or establish an optimal testing strategy, depending upon the clinical context. Um, but to do that, each party needs to appreciate the perspectives of the other. Uh, the third group of articles that we have are newborn screening. We chose these because newborns represent probably the largest and fastest growing population segment that's tested for cystic fibrosis. So issues regarding employing CF genetic testing in this setting are of paramount importance for pediatricians as well as specialty CF care personnel. It's especially important to consider these issues in caring for families in which there's some ambiguity created by the newborn screen process, uh, like a situation of having a positive immunoreactive trypsinogen, but no or only one mutation identified as part of the genetic component of testing, or children who have gone through the newborn screening process and screen negative who later in childhood go on to exhibit some clinical symptoms um, or non-classic uh, CF. Lastly, prognostic information is often a primary concern for families. They often seek anticipatory guidance. Genetic testing for CF has a limited role to play in prognostic prediction right now, but it's important for both families and clinicians to understand these limitations and learn a little bit about how researchers are working to add to our information regarding the functional and phenotypic significance of CF mutation. Uh, Dr. Gary Cutting, anything to add? Uh, no, I think Barbara has done a great job in summarizing the message that should be conveyed here is that physicians and other medical personnel need to continue upgrading their education as it comes to testing, all forms of testing, and particularly now with genetic testing. So presenting a diverse and broad uh, series of articles hopefully carries across to the clinician the importance of keeping up to date with genetic advances, which probably are moving faster than most other fields right now and are, because of their widespread use, starting to be employed in many different areas. So it's a challenge for the clinicians, uh, but one in which we feel uh, the programs like this will uh, make them aware of the need to uh, open the book every so often or check online and so forth to, to, to keep up with this rapidly advancing field. Dr. Cutting, the approved CF mutation panel, it contains only 23 mutations. Uh, why is this when over 1,000 mutations have been reported in CF? This is a question we get many times. Why, if there are 1,000, don't you test for 1,000? 1,500 or what the large number might be. And indeed, laboratories have been advertising that some test for only 23, others test for 50, some test for 100 or so. And the thought would be, well, if you test for more, wouldn't you get a better test at the end of the day with more people coming positive with the testing? Well, the issue is that not all of those mutations, of those 1,000 mutations, are as common as each other. Some are extremely rare. They occur in one or only a few people worldwide. So in order to have an effective test, uh, you really would want to first pick in that effective test the most common mutations, the ones that are seen over and over again. Since we see those mutations over and over again, we have a high degree of confidence that those mutations are associated with disease. Some of the more rare mutations, because they've only been seen uh, in a few patients, we don't have that much strong evidence that they actually cause disease. So when we talk about mutation, we have to keep in mind that it can be any change in DNA, and that change may or may not cause disease. If it doesn't cause disease, we generally call it, if it's frequent enough, a polymorphism. And these polymorphisms are, are usually benign in their nature. So 
the test, uh, the 23 mutation test that's been most commonly used, uh, is based on recommendations of the American College of Medical Genetics, and it was based on a frequency evaluation. That is that the, each of these mutations is found in the general population of, at a frequency of 0.1% or greater. In addition, each of the mutations have been seen frequently enough and have been studied in research laboratories, but we have a high degree of confidence that each of those mutations causes cystic fibrosis. Now, we know that a number of the other mutations in that list of 1,000 or more have been evaluated in laboratories. Approximately 50 to 75 have been investigated. And we know that some of these mutations, now that more testing has been done, some of these mutations have been seen in more individuals, both in the United States and uh, in other countries in Europe, for example. So our ability to now make calls as far as the disease liability of a greater number of mutations has been considerably enhanced. And indeed, to address this issue, there will be a project ongoing called uh, CFTR2 that will look at these other mutations and to determine their disease liability. At the current time, however, the present list of 23 mutations represent the best compromise between sensitivity, specificity, most importantly, cost. The cost issue is one in which we have to consider from, Ms. Karczewski said from the prior question, uh, that laboratories have to consider how well their tests are operating. And costs have to be considered when you're doing 1,000 mutations versus 23, and how much more value you're getting for that extra 900 or so mutations. So again, to keep the cost down to make this effective test from the laboratory perspective, keeping to 23 mutations that have been highly validated uh, allows uh, laboratories to offer this test at uh, an optimal cost for both diagnostic testing and for screening purposes. Uh, Ms. Karczewski? Just to point out that in the scenario or the clinical context in which the 23 mutation panel is used most often, and that's population-based carrier screening or newborn screening, or as a first step um, in a diagnostic path, um, that it fulfills its function very well. Um, and to know that that's not the only test out there, that, that if that fails as a first step in an attempt to diagnose a patient, there are other, as uh, Dr. Cutting mentioned, other panels, more expansive, that may include um, mutations more common in other ethnicities. Um, and there's always the option to move to mutation scanning or full sequencing to really figure out a problem case. I want to stick for a moment on the lab approach to these rare or, or novel CFTR mutations. Uh, Dr. Cutting, would you elaborate a little bit on the procedures the lab goes through to interpret these sequence changes? This concept follows directly on what Barbara just mentioned uh, about the more extensive panels and techniques that can be used to look for a larger group of mutations, the scanning and sequencing techniques. The issue when they apply these techniques is whether or not as I mentioned earlier, the mutation actually causes disease. So the laboratory does have a challenge in looking at the mutation and trying to think through, does that change alter the property of the protein? Does it alter some other property of the gene? And therefore, what is its likelihood that it will cause disease? Now, there are some changes in DNA, which we know from study of many genes, that will be very likely to cause a problem with the function of the gene. This is where there is an introduction of something called a premature termination codon. That's a stop signal that gets placed into the sequence, the coding sequence of the gene, by a change of a single nucleotide or by a removal or addition of a certain number of nucleotides that
that shifts something called the reading frame of the protein, so that a reading frame of the gene, I'm sorry, that uh, will then lead to a stop signal being placed in the wrong position. Uh, there can also be changes in the way the gene is put together, the way that it, the coding regions are assembled. This process is called splicing. And if the splicing is abnormal, pieces are missing or additional pieces are put in, again, it shifts the reading frame and you can get a stop signal in the wrong place. Get a stop signal in the wrong place, you don't make a protein that is full length or in many cases, you don't make any protein at all because the RNA containing the stop signal is removed in the nucleus. So those types of changes, which account for about a quarter to a third of the changes in the CFTR gene, can be predicted to be deleterious. The changes, uh, other changes that alter one amino acid or a few amino acids can be much more challenging. That's because some proteins are tolerant to changes in amino acids and still function okay. So the question is, if we find a change or if a laboratory finds a change in a single amino acid, does it necessarily mean that it changes the function of the protein? Well, there's a variety of things a laboratory can do. They can look at the protein sequence of the CFTR in different species. So the CFTR sequence has been determined by various sequencing projects uh, in a variety of species, other mammals, in reptiles, fish, all the way down to quite primitive organisms, uh, Drosophila and so forth, so that one can do what we call alignment, which is you line them all up and see where everything agrees uh, as best as possible and find positions where exactly the same amino acid is found at the same location in all the species. That means that if it's found, the same amino acid is found in the same position in all species, that means that Mother Nature probably wanted that amino acid at that location for a good reason, more likely because it's important functionally to the protein. So if you have a change in the DNA sequence, a mutation that changes the amino acid at that location, then you can predict that more than likely it's going to change the function of the protein. That's not always the case, but it's a reasonable guideline. Now, if the amino acid is not highly conserved, and that's what we're looking at is cross-species conservation, then it becomes more difficult to decide if the amino acid is conserved just in mammals but not in other species, Will it really make a big difference if I change that amino acid in a person carrying this, uh, if it's only changed in some mammals? So does that make uh, that change uh, deleterious? It becomes quite an art to do this. There are computer programs, uh, algorithms we call them, that make predictions using these rules and this information, uh, but, but they're by no means perfect. There are other tools we can use, and that is to look at the protein and say, what are the parts of the protein that have important functions? And are these amino acids changing regions of the protein that have important functions? That could be another hint. We also can look at structure. If we make a prediction of the structure of the protein, what it would look like in 3D, then make a change in the amino acid sequence, say that one amino acid in that particular structure, and we could determine whether or not it changes the structure. Does it now fold in a different way? Now the mutation has been introduced. So those three things can be used, cross-species conservation, functional domain assessment, and structural assessment to infer whether an amino acid change may cause dysfunction of the protein. But again, these are all predictions, and not every laboratory has access to each one of those tools I just mentioned. So that's why when you order a test from a laboratory, you may want to ask them, how will you deal with information that you get from a sequencing or scanning assay? How good are you 
and to what steps do you go through to interpret changes when you find them, particularly if they're changes that have never been seen before, the novel changes, because it's going to be very important in telling my patient whether they may have a change that causes an abnormal function of the CFTR protein and therefore would be causing their, what I believe is their cystic fibrosis diagnosis, how good is the laboratory at making these interpretations, to what degree do they go through these interpretations, so forth. It's good to ask that ahead of time because it's very difficult after you've got the information in your hand to then go back to the lab. And if the lab says, well, we don't do any further evaluation, then you're in a difficult situation and then have to search around amongst the community to find individuals who can help you interpret that information. Now, there are other guides that we in the genetics laboratory can use that can assist, and these involve looking at the family to see if other individuals in the same family who are affected with cystic fibrosis contain those changes, and others that uh, who are healthy do not have those changes. That helps us somewhat, but it's not a perfect test. There sometimes are additional studies that can be performed on the patient that we would say we think this change may cause disease, but you need to correlate it with the clinical information. So that might be uh, beyond doing a sweat test in a CF patient, might be doing something we call a nasal potential difference test, and that might help interpret the mutation information. So sometimes, or frequently, working hand-in-hand, I'd have to say, with the clinician, the laboratory that is working with the clinician, as uh, Ms. Karzewski indicated uh, in her answer to the first question, is critical, because then with information that the genetic level is somewhat difficult to interpret, can be assisted once we work with the clinician to further investigate the clinical features of the patient and then mesh that with the genetic information. Finally, I'll come around to what I mentioned a little earlier about a project uh, that's underway, funded by the United States Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, to evaluate the functional consequences of all of the mutations that have been reported in the CFTR gene. Now, this is going to take a couple of years to do, but the foundation is recognized as a patient care organization that a number of families and patients and also clinicians are left with incomplete information when a genetic test is done. A novel mutation has been found. One does not know exactly whether it causes disease or not, and it is therefore of limited value for the patient. By doing functional studies on each of these mutations and providing them in a public database, along with well-annotated clinical information, will allow the new database, CFTR2, as it's going to be called, to provide a call estimate of the disease liability of each of these mutations. And this is going to be done using uh, evidence-based medicine approaches. So while we're right now in a difficult situation on occasion with rare mutations or novel mutations, I would encourage the clinician to check with the laboratory how are they going to deal with the novel mutation or the rare mutation, how they're going to help interpret that mutation. I think the future is going to hold more information available in public repositories that will provide information on mutations, but it still is up to the clinician, as it is always, to put into context the information they have in hand. With test results in hand, I think one has to turn again to look at the patient, think through the patient and say, does this test result make sense to understand how it appears this change or these changes in the CFTR gene are actually acting to cause disease in my patient? I think it is that challenge uh, that still remains the purview of the uh, clinician to put it all together once the laboratory and others have provided information to interpret genetic testing appropriately. And we'll return in just a moment with Dr. Gary Cutting and Barbara Karzetsky from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. 
Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians, by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses, and by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine for Pharmacists. Subscription to eCystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge and nearly a thousand of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive e-cystic fibrosis review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to our September 2008 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, and I'm with Dr. Gary Cutting, professor of pediatrics and medicine, and Barbara Karsetsky, genetic counselor, both from the DNA Diagnostic Laboratory at the Institute of Genetic Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Our topic is how to interpret genetic tests for cystic fibrosis. We've been discussing the interpretation of genetic sequence changes. I'd like to switch gears now, and I'd like to ask you to comment on how a clinician should discuss the results of CF testing with patients. Uh, Ms. Karsetsky? Sure. I think I'd like to start by echoing um, Dr. Cutting's sentiment that knowing the clinical context um, in which testing is at at this point proposed um, is essential. Um, The physician-clinician needs to know the situation, the clinical situation, um, the ethnicity of the patient involved in order to accurately counsel on things like test sensitivity. Um, And this should be done prior to initiating testing. Um, And there's a careful consideration process in picking the best test for the clinical context at hand. Um, The clinician should educate the patient and and or the family um, about what he or she hopes to accomplish through testing. Um, In looking at what are the clinician's goals in offering testing, is this to confirm a fairly solid clinical diagnosis? Is this to make um, a situation where the diagnosis is still fairly uncertain? And do the goals of the clinician coincide with the family's goals? Um, Do they have similar expectations of the process of testing, what can be accomplished, and uh, what tasks each of them have to get through the testing process? 
is the family adequately prepared regarding issues of how expensive this testing can be, um, especially if you're going through the diagnostic process of starting out with a panel, moving to an expanded panel, moving to a mutation scanning or sequencing test, potentially ultimately to a deletion test or referral to a research laboratory to really work out a complex case. Does the family, um, is the family aware of issues of turnaround time, of how accurate the testing is, um, and do they feel it's a worthwhile investment of their time and their resources and their emotions in the process? The other thing to discuss with the family uh, before testing is uh, initiated is what changes will the results instigate? Uh, what won't change? What's the next step if results are negative or ambiguous? Um, are there any next steps available? Um, and what's the next step in patient management? What changes for care, medications, tests, and surveillance based on the results of this test? I think the most important element is providing the family with all of this um, information, opportunities to discuss and think about the testing process, and then allowing the family or the patient to choose whether testing is something they want to do. Um, as a counselor in a clinical diagnostic laboratory, I often get calls or emails from patients saying, I need to have this done because the doctor said it needed to be done. And there isn't a clear-cut understanding of exactly what the aim or the goal of testing is. I think another th thing the physician can do is carefully prepare the family for uncertain or unclear results, um, those instances where all of the tools that Dr. Cutting mentioned in the previous question are brought to bear in trying to weigh evidence and figure out whether a change is disease-causing or disease-contributing or not likely to be playing a role for that particular patient. Um, this is especially important in the cases where the clinical presentation or the diagnosis are unclear. Um, much of the time results are clear-cut, um, but families expecting a clear-cut yes-no answer are often not prepared for the uncertainty. Um, what does a negative diagnostic test mean? What is a variant of uncertain significance? Families aren't expecting these things to complicate um, their path toward making a diagnosis and getting a test result. And hearing this information can often throw families into a state of turmoil. Genetic testing can turn into a very dynamic event for these families. They're expecting something stagnant, give blood, wait, get result, have answers. Um, and it's essential to reevaluate ambiguous results um, over time. Mutation panels may change. Um, we may learn more as projects like CFTR2 are underway. We may learn more and more about what today is a variant of uncertain significance. We may be able to further classify it as benign or polymorphism, not contributing to disease. Or on the other hand, we may gain more and more evidence that it is contributing to disease um, in patients. Um, so there's a kind of a, a burden to continue the conversation with the laboratory over time if the results were not as clear-cut as expected. Very often, clinicians and laboratories want to spend their time and their resources on figuring out the positives, um, but especially from a, a physician-family relationship perspective, it's just as important to spend time discussing the meaning of a negative result. Um, molecular results are evidence. They need to be taken into consideration with other lab results, with a clinical history and a family history. Um, and physicians should encourage and assist families who need help informing their relatives of what's going on and what testing has been done and what, te what the results of those tests 
mean for those relatives, and of course, a referral for counseling as needed by the family for either additional education, um, psychological counseling, or just support through this difficult time. Population-based CF screening and newborn screening. Clarify for us, if you would, the differences between them. I think it might be easier to approach um, this question with their similarities instead of their differences. Both programs are in place to assist families who are affected by or who are at risk for cystic fibrosis. Um, and both of them employ genetic testing for CF, most commonly in the form of the mutation panels that Dr. Cutting mentioned earlier. The differences between population-based screening and newborn screening lie in their specific aims, their goals, and the methods that they use. So um, I guess let me start with some basic definitions. Population screening is testing of um, the members of a couple to determine their risk for having a child with cystic fibrosis. Um, this is so that we can offer reproductive and family planning choices to these couples at risk to enable them to have healthy children. And some of these options include using donor sperm or eggs, doing pre-implantation genetic diagnosis so that only non-affected embryos can be transferred and healthy pregnancies will ensue, um, prenatal diagnosis once a pregnancy is underway, or potentially the option of adopting um, unaffected children. Newborn screening is testing newborns to identify as yet phenotypically asymptomatic children who have and will go on to develop symptoms of cystic fibrosis. Um, this is so that these children can have immediate entry into specialized care at CF centers, um, and it's been proven that such immediate care and attention uh, will improve growth and nutritional outcomes for patients. The newborn screening program has a very similar but secondary effect of educating the families involved, informing them that they are indeed at risk, and providing them with the same subsequent options for um, reproductive and family planning. In an ideal world, we wouldn't really need both programs. Um, state and other healthcare resources should would be placed behind one or the other program as the um, institution or the organization or the government saw fit. But our current system is far from that ideal in a number of ways. As originally imagined, um, population-based carrier screening was a preconception event. Couples who were planning a family, who were looking into things, would present for carrier screening, would learn their risks, and therefore would have the full range of reproductive options open to them. In practice, though, it is really shifted into a program that's part of prenatal care. Um, once a couple is pregnant, once mom is showing up for prenatal care, it's at that time where a nurse in the OB's office usually mentions CF carrier screening, does a brief education on that, and assesses whether um, the couple is interested in pursuing that testing. In today's society, when we have issues of some women receiving little or no prenatal care, um, Often, both members of a couple are not available during the pregnancy for testing. Um, there is a presence of an ongoing pregnancy which can change the perspective of many couples. In these situations, not all couples have the opportunity to choose or to make decisions about their screening tests and their screening results. While a state-mandated CF newborn screening program, um, while they're becoming more common across the U.S., they're still not yet in place 
um, in every state. Um, so while it casts a wider net um, than maybe some population-based carrier screening programs, it's not all-encompassing either. So we know we're missing simply by point of access. We are missing some couples at risk or some children who are affected with CF. Another issue is that we're not using a perfect test for cystic fibrosis. Um, as Dr. Cutting mentioned earlier, the mutation panels are designed to detect a reasonable number of mutations in a population um, to preserve test specificity, knowing that what we're assessing causes disease, while maximizing the test sensitivity or the accuracy or reliability of testing, um, as well as maintaining costs at a reasonable level so that we can afford to offer these across the board to newborns or to couples who need the testing. Um, we know that we're going to miss some at-risk couples uh, based on false negative test results. We also know that we're going to miss some affected newborns this way. After 20 years of knowing about the CFTR gene, we haven't been able to produce a perfect genetic test, um, and we're not very likely to in the near future. So for now, both of these programs exist. Both of them serve a very valuable niche in identifying, assisting, and educating uh, families who are at risk for or have a child with CF. Um, and they both coexist to cover as many gaps in the system as possible. Uh, going back now to the newsletter, several of the papers reviewed indicated that knowing the nature of the CF mutations does not help in predicting the course of the disease. Are there any situations where genetic information can aid in developing a prognosis? Dr. Cutting? Well, there is limited areas where genetic information can be useful, and those are related to the pancreatic status. So patients with cystic fibrosis generally develop an abnormality in the secretions that are made by the pancreas and then travel through the ducts and into the intestine. Abnormalities in the viscosity of those secretions lead to destruction of the exocrine pancreas. However, not every patient with cystic fibrosis gets complete destruction of the exocrine pancreas, and they have residual pancreatic function. And that residual pancreatic function, we call pancreatic sufficiency, is uh, associated in general with a better outcome. The patients tend to have less severe lung disease, and they tend to live longer on average. But again, that's an averaging, and that's the population of individuals who are, we call, pancreatic sufficient. And that's about 10 to 15 percent of CF patients are pancreatic sufficient. Now, work that was done by investigators in Toronto uh, quite a few years ago showed that there was a correlation between the type of mutation in the CFTR gene and whether or not you would be pancreatic sufficient. They discovered that there was a subset of mutations that were associated, consistently associated, with the pancreatic sufficient state. And some of these mutations have been studied in functional systems, and we have discovered that those mutations usually allow the CFTR protein to have some function. So these mutations don't knock out the function of the gene completely. They just reduce it somewhat by 70, 80, 90%. And so they are lead to cystic fibrosis, but one that is moderated, moderated in that they are uh, pancreatic sufficient. And uh, clinically, this pancreatic sufficient state means that the individuals generally do not have to take pancreatic enzyme supplements. And as I mentioned, they have an improved uh, outcome in the lung and survival areas. So you can use the CFTR mutation information and determine whether or not any of the individuals carry a mutation that will be associated with pancreatic 
sufficiency, and there's a list of them that have been published. And that would then imply that your patient would likely be a little bit milder and live a little bit longer. But again, I must emphasize that this kind of correlation has been done on populations of patients. When it comes down to the individual patient, you still have to be very careful in trying to predict for that patient exactly how well they're going to do. That is exemplified by the fact that we know some individuals carry these partial functioning mutations that normally would predict that they would be pancreatic sufficient, and yet they end up having severe pancreatic disease. Why does that occur? Variables in the environment, variables in other genes and so forth contribute to varying the outcome in individual patients. So the mutation information is most useful in populations and in research settings and so forth. You can use the information to subtly shade if your patient does carry one of these pancreatic sufficient mutations, say that, well, there's a chance that you may be pancreatic sufficient, you will stay pancreatic sufficient, and that may be associated with a little bit longer survival and so forth. But you have to also mention there are patients that are exceptions to the rule, and we don't know for sure for you in person whether or not you're going to follow the average or you're going to be at one end of the spectrum or the other. So again, the information, as we've been saying all the way through this podcast, this information has to be used carefully and thoughtfully to inform the patients and to consider that there are a lot of other factors that come into play, lifestyle and so forth, like we do with many other diseases, have these factors that come into play. And we are recognizing more and more other genes, what we call genetic modifiers, that are going to contribute to this variation in their disease. Thank you, Dr. Gary Cutting and Barbara Kozetsky from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you, too, for this opportunity. This podcast is presented in conjunction with eCystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME, CNE, and CPE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. Please visit our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, to register for the program. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing, and the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. For pharmacists, this program is approved for 0.5 hour credit or 0.05 CEUs, awarded by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies the review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, 
including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Solvay Pharmaceuticals, and Novartis AG. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.